but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 191. It's the part two of the TBS Rewind that we promised you. We hope you enjoyed the the levity that we attempted to bring your way last episode. Yeah, because now here's the gravity. <laughs> oh, okay. Isn't that like the... Uh, the antonym? The, yeah. Sure. Yeah, didn't you take the SATs? While technically correct, I suppose it wouldn't be the word I would go with. No, I mean, we we separated this Rewind episode into two parts, and the second one is some of our a little more um, conscious efforts, I guess. It's not like a woe is me type situation, you know, it's we're not trying to bring the mood down on this one. It, the idea behind these two episodes was to give folks, if they hadn't listened to The Body Surf for a long time, to give them idea of what the show is about. And so we we often have laughs on the show. We brought those last week. And then this week we're going to talk about or highlight some of the more socially conscious stuff that we do on the show. Mm-hmm. And hopefully there are still plenty of laughs in the more dramatic sections of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, we're still funny, I think. Oh, really? <laughs> so. That is entirely subjective. You'll see, I think, from listening back to some of it, a lot of cockiness in spots. <laughs> mm. I'll be curious to hear what what these conversations feel like with a little bit of perspective. You know, if they still feel as important or substantive. Mm. There was something you said on the last episode that listening back ahead of this episode, there was something that you weren't necessarily proud of. Is yes. that still going to be yes, on the so show? We'll get there. Yeah. I still don't know what it is. Oh, okay. Back on episode 100, I guess we had solicited questions from listeners. And one of the questions was, what is the theme of the podcast? And I guess that's a good way to get this show going. So let's let's revisit that. What's the theme of the podcast, asks Anna Marseille. Mm-hmm. And I think when she asked this question, I don't think she meant meant it in such a broad meta way, which is how I want to treat it. I think she meant, what is the theme of the next episode? Oh, See, I, I, I could like, be wrong. I read it like you read it. <laughs> right. So, but I, I think it's a good opportunity to kind of reiterate who we are and what we do and, uh, and what we hope we bring to the table that makes us different than others. You want to take a crack at that? Well, this podcast is unique, I think, in that... It's us, right? That mm. first and foremost, there's that. We bring that to the table for better <laughs> or worse. That sounds so arrogant. It, well, for better or worse. Okay. Right? That's what makes us different from a lot of other podcasts. You know, well, or 10 years of built chemistry in mm. our private life. And and our shared histories with tennis as well as fans. Yes. You know, it's it's unique. But also, I think that we come at it through a lens of intersectional feminism yeah yeah and then it branches off into many other things in terms of how we look at and cover tennis Mm -hmm. i think if you want 
the scores and you want great tennis analysis from you know tactical standpoint there are podcasts that do that really well and that's just never going to be us the only time <laughs> we did that was this year at the french open we did a, a, a fairly good job i would say in breaking down what rafa did mm-hmm. well technically right so for me what i'm interested in and what i hope comes across on the podcast is broader issues that sort of float above and through tennis because we both believe that sport is political the personal is political these things are inescapably intertwined and that sport brings up a lot of thorny and ugly and complex issues like racism and sexism and homophobia right which we're going to talk about a bit later but to me looking at sport just as backhands and forehands and points and who won is boring but it's also incomplete how is that yeah i think that about (laughs) covers it (laughs) all right that was for tbs 100 is there anything you want to add or subtract from that summation of what the body serve is no i think it, Mm. it about covered it do you want to add anything no it i it's really hard to describe what you do in an elevator pitch right i found that when i was writing a thesis in grad school It was very difficult to give someone like the 22nd pitch of what your research is about. So I think if you've been listening to the show, you know what we're about. And you have probably decided if you like us or don't at this point. At that time, I don't think we had done any of our standalone episodes. So that would be different and an addition to the the output, but just still through the same lens, really, I think. Mm -hmm. I like how you said what sets us apart is that we're us. Which sounded obvious, but there is something very intimate about listening to a podcast, right? I find that listening to other people's podcasts, sometimes you just click with one and and other times something just turns you off. It it can be difficult to, to explain why you're drawn to this format. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's about the timbre of someone's voice, about their rhythm, their personality. It's so personal. Sometimes you enjoy how sadistic one host is to the other, how much they oppress them. Right. If you're into that, you probably like this show. But, I mean, I don't really listen to podcasts, so I don't really know what so you're you talking wouldn't. about. <laughs> we did a whole ass episode back in 2015, in our first season, about Andy Murray and why his feminism matters. And we're going to revisit that because... It, it's still timely. Anyway, let's just play this clip and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Andy Murray has now been given this label as being a feminist. He's even claimed it in some way for himself. We'll get to that more later. Mm-hmm. But in what ways would you say he has shown himself to be a feminist? Okay, I would say, well, he's been a little reluctant to accept the word Mm -hmm. and it's gotten easier for him recently you know but i think andy murray has shown himself to be a feminist or kind of a champion of women in that he goes out of his way to sort of big up women's sports big up (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) he's gone to bat for moresmo many times unsolicited was it at the Australian Open where they asked, so you played very well? And he goes, after the match, he's on court. You played very well today. And he's like, 
Yeah, you know, I just want to say that, you know, uh, I'm having a great time and Emily Moresmo is a wonderful coach and she's doing a really great job. <laughs> and, you know, this shows that women can be coaches, and, yes. you know, like y'all are a bunch of motherfuckers for thinking otherwise and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like he's taking every opportunity to, to hit the nail on the head, you know? Right. Um, I think it's interesting that he that there was a lot of conflict within his camp over her appointment and he kind of dismissed the people who questioned him. Yes. In that Red Bulletin magazine piece that came out a few weeks ago, that was the most interesting part for me. Because there was speculation as to mm -hmm. why Danny Belverdu had left his team and went to work for Burdick, right? Mm -hmm. And it was pretty much that they had a disagreement over Moresmo. And Andy said, yeah. you know, well, that's that. He made it a, a lot more clear. Yes. Because before we weren't sure exactly, you know, how they left things. Mm -hmm. But we just heard that they were on good terms. Right. And that that may be true. Probably But is. it seems that the main disagreement was about his appointment. Her appointment. Well, right. Yes. His appointment of Moresmo. Okay. Gotcha. So. Which is pretty ballsy for having been with Belverde for so long. Yes. Um, another thing is that he's talked a lot about how his mother has been such an important figure in his life. Mm-hmm. And in his tennis life as well. You know, she was his coach when they were kids. And then you accompany that with him saying that one of the major things that he was excited to have with his relationship with Moresmo is the fact that she listened to him. Right. You know, something as simple as that, mm. which is just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want to be listened to? Right. It was. And he also mentioned, you know, having so many men around. Mm hmm. And everyone giving their opinion so freely, it becomes a little overwhelming, you know. And that he felt a bit overwhelmed by the machismo of it. Right. <laughs> and part of which was his own, I'm sure. Yes. And he's said that he's really comfortable opening up to the women in his life. That it's easier. His wife, his coach, and his mother. Yeah. You know? um, now, we should mention that having... A strong, dominant mother figure doesn't necessarily make someone progressive. No. As far as gender goes, you know, because a lot of times this morphs into this whole like, I have sisters and I was raised by my mother. And, you know, I have so many strong women that I feel I need to protect. Yes. You know, <laughs> there's a difference between like chivalry and feminism. Absolutely. And a tennis example is Jimmy Connors had kind of the most famous tennis mom. They were very close, and she was an accomplished player herself. But that didn't necessarily make him a feminist. And we've seen that in his dealings with uh, Chris Everett, I think, very clearly. Uh. You know, it's I don't like to make pronouncements about what a feminist should be, but a feminist should not... You, you talk about someone's alleged abortion and blame that for the end of your relationship. Yeah, that's you know, it's not a, a famous look. public fig yeah. public figure trying to humiliate her like that, especially when it was so long after the fact, almost forty years, yeah. and they were so young. It's like find different ways to sell books, you know. <laughs> anyway, so that was a side note. Yeah, so Murray's decision is important, and. I want to talk about why, in the context of sport, that appointing a woman's coach, a woman as a coach, is very important. Mm -hmm. One of the main ways it's important is because women have such little access to space 
in sporting culture, whether it be mm. on TV, you have the sideline reporters who are there to sell their bodies. Well, we have very little, very few spaces in kind of administration, mm -hmm. the executives, the coaches. And you have of... also very little space on TV as female athletes. Right. Serena Williams could win the Grand Slam 10 years in a row, 40 majors in a row, and a fucking horse or a quarterback, <laughs> you know, has one great game mm. and they're athlete of the year. If you have yeah. a joint male-female category, you know. And she might get 30 seconds on SportsCenter. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. If there's not a hockey game that day, mm -hmm. you know. And so, and it, it starts from a very young age. It starts from youth sport, really. But, you know, these are the the indicators that we get from society from very young ages into adolescence that being a woman or a girl is less than being a man. Right. They're unmistakable. And there's this thing at play that is kind of like the Victorian ideal of womanhood that mm -hmm. still persists that, you know, women are delicate, their bodies are fragile, and they need to be protected. Get her off the court. She's broken a sweat. <laughs> <laughs> right. That women need to be protected. Yeah. By men. Yes. But then there's... Or, and also preserved for men. Well, of course. And so there's... First of all, there's a lot of criticism about women's bodies when they become too athletic. That that's not attractive or mm -hmm. that they look like men. Um, and on the other side of that, there's... Well, she's a great athlete, but she could never beat so-and-so. You know, Serena Williams is the best woman tennis player but she couldn't beat the top 1000 mm. male tennis players right how many times have you seen an internet comment on some serena article that says you know like who gives a shit like she could barely even win a set from the player ranked 250 you know right like she's not great as if these women are playing on like public high school courts uh -huh. you know that they just pick this up as a hobby <laughs> and so the standards that we judge women's sports is is crazy yes because we expect them to play like men but we're offended and grossed out if they do play like men so this is the context in which women are trying to excel in sport and as coaches and and bosses and you know in a lot of the same way that there's a real lack of uh, black representation in professional sports where black men are the players yes you know we see such a lack of women in, in top positions as well. So for a top male tennis player to choose an accomplished female tennis player as his coach is really something. It is. So Andy Murray choosing Moresmo is a big deal. We've mm -hmm. covered that and why it's a big deal. The part for me that makes it an even bigger deal, and this is where he's getting a lot of pushback, is that some people are getting tired of hearing about him praising Moresmo, feeling that relative to what other players would say about their coach, he's speaking more about his coach than others would and why. And then they take that as tokenism and mm -hmm. that he's giving her undue praise or he's trying too hard to be a feminist. When in fact, that's the impressive part about it. He sees the inequality and that's why he's doubling down on it. Right. He's like a dog with a bone. You talked about it, that it fits perfectly with his personality in that he's so stubborn that if he <laughs> sees that this is something that he wants to to make an issue, 
to speak for women's involvement in sport, that he's not going to let it go. And he isn't. Right. You know, this is something we know about Andy Murray from way back that he's stubborn. Yeah. And so to see this part of his character kind of used for good deeds is, <laughs> is really kind of cool. Yeah. So what were your, your thoughts on listening mm-hmm. back to that? You, are you terribly bored? Yes. It, that could use <laughs> a very thorough edit is, are my first impressions. Okay. A lot of you knows. It's hard because this was recorded five years ago. It's something that we've covered so extensively since then that it feels like so repetitive mm, at this point. It feels stale. And at the time, Andy had just hired Moresmo in 2014. He was, well, was and still is tennis's only male feminist. <laughs> One of the very few men in tennis who actively support and celebrate women athletes who do the work nick nick Kyrgios is actually one of those since then john millman there aren't very many you can count them on one or two hands one thing that's kind of striking me now is andy has pushed back a lot and and sort of bristles at that label for a different reason i think the label being feminist yeah and i think at first it was a, a discomfort with the word itself and now it's a more sophisticated discomfort with being seen as this male savior as it being his responsibility to to save women from persecution when it's not at all how he sees his role he gave this interview recently where where he was asked about this and he said but you realize these things happen every single day to female athletes and i just feel like everybody should be treated equally that's it he pauses this is the, the editorial part of this article. He pauses, laughing with incredulity at how novel some find his, as he puts it, simple views. Maury goes on to say, I don't think it's a radical or outspoken thing to say. It's quite a basic thing. So, if someone asks me or says something that I think is wrong, then I will defend women. So to your point, he just sees it as second nature, just something that everybody should be doing and the fact that he might be doing certain things and saying certain things does not make him special really it makes you all the assholes <laughs> right <laughs> but he said it's not even something he really noticed sexism is not something he was even aware of until he hired emily Moresmo back in 2014 and saw all the pushback he got mm-hmm. he was getting texts from his colleagues from his male colleagues, one of whom said hiring Moresmo was akin to hiring a dog to be a coach. Basically that it's useless. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming he was talking about Valverdu in <laughs> retrospect, but then he also said currently in present time that one of the things that surprised him was how much pushback he got from inside his own camp. Yeah. That previously when he had lost matches, it was like, well, Andy, you suck. This is what you need to do to get better. Whereas when Moresma was in camp, folks wanted to know, was she the right fit? Well, you can see who was on his team and who is no longer on his team. If, if you really want to guess who the, who the detractors were. Danny Valverdu. Well, we don't know this. That's just circumstantial Well, you said if you want to do the I'm math, not, I did right, some math. But I'm not putting any slander on okay. the record here. I was talking about... The socialization of young boys and girls into sport and how young boys come at it with this this idea that they're better than girls, even when they're 
they're probably at a physical disadvantage at those young ages, right? I was talking mm-hmm. about this five years ago. And to me, that is similar to these men in Mari's camp questioning Moresma by default when she is the head coach. It's the same thing, because the built-in assumption there is that she cannot be as good as a man. Mm. And when it comes down to it, that's the work that we try to do, that I'm, I'm assuming Andy is trying to do, to push back and undo this gendered socialization that necessarily elevates men over women by default. Mm-hmm. So what you see Andy doing now is when he has an opportunity to lift people up, he tries to do so. And when it's important to get out of the way, he does that too. And that's ideally what we hope to do. You know, necessarily having a podcast, a lot of times you are speaking for people. And we've talked about how being an ally is avoiding that as much as possible. is sort of amplifying the voices of people who matter and who are really affected by these fights and getting out of the way when necessary. So I'd like to weave that in to my life even more. Getting out of the way? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that Andy is, is uh, currently doing the work is through his fairly new sport agency. I didn't even really know this until recently, that he has an agency called 77, and that's in reference to the number of years it took for him to break the spell at Wimbledon for a British male. And what he's been doing is actively seeking out women athletes to sign to his agency. It's been an active part of his mission statement with that company. Right. So he recently signed an up-and-coming Scottish footballer, a midfielder with uh, Manchester City named Caroline Ware. They sat down for an interview with The Telegraph recently, which is where this quote came from that you read, and just sort of celebrated each other, praised each other a little bit. It was very feel-good, but it did offer some insight into what he hopes to accomplish with this management agency. That article you're referring to was in The Telegraph and written by Molly McElwee. McElwee? I don't know. I don't, I don't speak Scottish. So we move from Murray's feminism to the U.S. Open in 2018. Mm-hmm. If you had asked me if there was any chance we would do something like this and bring this up voluntarily, I would have said no a few uh, months ago. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that I have not revisited. I've never listened to this episode again. I went through our, our Twitter history. So... We got a lot of trolls after this episode. I got mad. I didn't act right on Twitter. You didn't? I blocked people. Uh, A lot of the people who talked shit either deleted their account or deleted those tweets because I couldn't find them. Or maybe you were blocked. Or Well, no. Some people were suspended. One in particular, I remember, was banned. Oh. Has shown up in another iteration. Hmm. You'll have Uh, to tell me this privately off air. But... uh, this was an incredibly controversial and difficult topic. It was a hard episode to record, and it's been something that's been uh, a bit painful to revisit, honestly, for many reasons. Well, that was quite the intro there, James. <laughs> I'm just going to play the audio right now. This is from September 2018, when tennis, as we knew it, would no longer exist. What they're going to remember is Serena living up to what a lot of people view her as, 
as this angry black woman. As, pardon the the phrase, but a black bitch. Mm-hmm. That's what people believe she is. They have painted her as animalistic for over 20 years. And now they have just one more anecdote to say, look, this is your fave. This is your goat. This is how she behaves on an international stage. This is not to pit women against each other, but just a simple thing like how Caroline Wozniacki is received as opposed to how Mm. Serena is received in a lot of instances. What is it about Serena that it's that much more offensive? Like, sure, you want to say Caroline did not say to Shino, I'm going to stuff this ball down your throat. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's one example. But what is it about Serena that's endured over all these years in spite of the alleged and what we believe to be growth that she's shown over the last seven years? Meanwhile, Caroline has regressed on a week-to-week basis, Mm -hmm. but the way she's viewed is totally different. What makes Serena aggressive and Caroline standing up for what she believes in? Mm. Why is it amusing when Plishkova attacks the umpire chair while the umpire is sitting in it? Mm -hmm. Like, why is that cute? That was a branding opportunity for her. She laughed about it after, like she thought it was good for her image because she's seen as robotic. Like, what? What is going on? And so when you tell me that race has nothing to do with it, I don't know what was going through the umpire's head. I'm not sitting here saying that he is racist. No. But I'm saying that you cannot see this situation outside of blackness because Serena is black. And I don't care if you don't get it. If if you're not from the United States and this, our racial mess doesn't make sense to you, that's fine. I don't expect you to be a student of history. It doesn't make sense to a lot of Americans right. as well. <laughs> right. But the fact that you don't get it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that it's wrong. Not that you just don't get it. You don't see it. Mm-hmm. And what does it take for somebody to see it? You know, what mm-hmm. were the things that made us see it? You know, there... Um, well, I'll go back to empathy. For I mean, I grew up with the, the all the privileges of whiteness. You did not. And, and you don't in North America, you know? So we're coming at this from a different place. Serena feels victimized at the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. That's a pattern that Specifically. is clear. So I can't possibly understand that. But I do understand that as a black woman who has both been done wrong by and did wrong at the mm-hmm. U.S. Open, yeah. she was wrong about Chino, but she was totally screwed by that 2004 quarterfinal against Jennifer Capriotti. I can see that multiple things are going on here. I can see that black people who are consistently over-policed, punished more harshly for the same crimes, stopped by police more. If you if you don't want to see that these things all exist in the same universe, like I, I just don't get it. That, I'm not saying like that somebody would bring that baggage with them right. to a tennis court. And it's not like this is criminality. Like, what Ramos did is not the same thing. No. And I know somebody will oversimplify this and take words out of my mouth. But you have to understand, like, a black woman in America might see it that way. Because she can't just let it go. Like, she can't just take that baggage off while she's on the tennis court. Does that make sense? Serena, you're talking about specifically? Yeah. And also her fans, who are of color as well. Mm -hmm. Because they bring their lives to their fandom of her as well. Right. So the army, I mean, the army can be very wrong, very loud and wrong. That that certainly does happen. But 
I tend to be a little more understanding because I get that this is a fandom that is predominantly black and they get a lot of other fandoms saying the army is horrible, they're disgusting, they're xenophobic, they're bigoted. And like these might be people who are new to tennis, may not be, but we want tennis to be a more diverse and accessible place. At least we do. I know a lot of people don't, but Serena fans are fans too. Like they like tennis too. You know, it's it's not that they're here just for Serena. It's almost as if some of these naysayers are, are out here salivating that, aha, this is the moment. This is the one moment where you cannot bring race into it. Like I've got you, I've got you cornered. Mm-hmm. This is the time when you are just that disgusting black bitch that I always knew you were. Mm-hmm. Nobody's being racist towards you. You're showing your true colors. That's what it boils down to for me. People want to essentialize Serena as this stereotype, one that looks familiar to them. They may not know why or where it comes from, or even if they're told about the angry black woman stereotype or all the ways in which black people are oppressed. They don't see it in their lives. They can't understand it. And they're not willing to give that leeway because of it. And Mm -hmm. so when you're presented with the opportunity to justify your gut reactions to this woman that you don't, you can't even really make sense of yourself, you know, right. and you're not re- willing to grapple with what it means about you and your privilege and where you've come from or whatever and the way you see the world. If somebody were to bring that argument to you, you would rather just boil boil this down to a basic. That is Serena. She is. That is who she is. She's a sore loser. She's a horrible person. And this is what I've always known. Mm. Fuck everything else. That I, not me, but these people, I've been force-fed to believe and be quiet about these last few years. She could do whatever it is. It doesn't matter. But I've got this moment now. Mm-hmm. And that, that goes back to that intellectual and emotional dishonesty that we were talking about. Because multiple things are true. Serena absolutely could have de-escalated. The reasons why she got heated in the first place might not be a reason you can understand. <laughs> But it sure as hell is not just a rules are rules kind of situation. Mm. And she smashed a racket. What is different about that from what the majority of tennis players do? Yes, it's a, it is it is a, an infraction. You know, but like the cumulative effect of these rules being broken brings us to the destruction of a Grand Slam final. And then it's mm. all meant to be put on Serena's head. Well, now we can fully blame it on Serena. Like, that's where yeah. we're at. And that's, yeah. I think, how history will see it, is that she self-destructed, she's a sore loser, she ruined this for everybody. And I don't necessarily see it that way. I know in my brain that she could have handled it differently, but that's not entirely what happened here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the people who don't like Serena or, or who think she's a sore loser, that they're all racist. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying... No, I think it's the refusal to... To understand that racism exists and that... That it can exist in sport as well. Yes. That sport is not a vacation from racism. Right. And racism, like, it doesn't have to be, like, Carlos Ramos wasn't sitting there like, wow, I hate this black girl. She's talking to me like this. What a bitch. It's not like that. Like, that's not how this works. What is going on unconsciously? What brought him to that level? Because Serena was already at a 10. Mm -hmm. So what made him, rather than attempt in any way to diffuse the situation to put like a human touch on the umpiring 
like another umpire might have done. Why didn't he de-escalate? If a player is escalating, why are you not de-escalating? That's it. It's interesting because this uh, this incident has the way that people talk about it now has changed a lot, and it's different than what I anticipated. Actually, I think the the world at large came to view this in a much more complex way than I thought they were. And right after we recorded this, this incident kind of got picked up by the the blue checks of Black Twitter of the mainstream press, and they took it and ran with it. And a lot of that was rather uncomplicated analysis of what happened, but a lot of it was pretty illuminating because it took it uh, beyond tennis and how people might interpret the incident without having a, a granular understanding of the rules of tennis. And that was what so many tennis fans were pissed about, is that, well, you don't get the rules. Like, okay. Can we, can we move on from that? You don't get the rules. Thing. They don't get the rules, but you don't get the baggage that black people bring right. to the tennis court. Right. So there was an incompleteness about a lot of different analyses. And uh, there was probably one with ours as well. An interesting wrinkle from this is that following the incident, Arena's Army, which is largely a group of black American tennis fans, became almost like the police because they... <laughs> After seeing Serena painted in this light, it was their like their duty to find um, rule breaking hmm. anywhere they could, right? And say this wasn't enforced consistently. You're but, saying rules are the rules, but here is example 56B subsection 3 of where the rules are not the rules. Right. And so at this point, you get a little tired of it, but... They were doing an important project because somebody was compiling this stuff and telling an alternate history. It's so fascinating to me how this has developed since then. It might have been more helpful for folks ahead of playing that segment if we had told you that the note that we tagged that segment was, what does it take for people to see blackness at play? Mm -hmm. So that's really what that was about. In this next bit, we're going to segue into the stuff that we've done with respect to gays in tennis. And specifically with respect to this segment, we're going to be talking about that summer of 2018 where I asked Roger Federer about that, as well as Kevin Anderson. We've talked about the Roger stuff a lot on the show, but we thought maybe we should bring back the audio from Kevin Anderson talking about that in Cincinnati in 2018 because I feel like that, that doesn't often get spoken about enough. A few weeks ago, you uh, tweeted something in support of LGBT athletes with relation to that event with Brian Vahaley, uh hosted by Nick McCarville. Yep. It's not altogether common to hear ATP players say things about that. Um, what kind of compelled you to speak up? Yeah, I mean, it's a you know, it's actually um, actually that's really close you know close to me. I'm you know, as I've said, I I'm a huge supporter of that. Um, you know, I've uh, my cousin actually just got married. You know, to his partner. Um, just last year, so it's you know touches very close to home, you know for me. Um, yeah, just you know the way I view it is just you know just from a human rights standpoint, I feel you know very strong on that front. So you know seeing that event, I mean I thought it was you know fantastic. I mean just speaking to some you know people, you know as my cousin, I understand the challenges um, you know in today's world, especially uh, in sports as well. 
you know, you've seen, you know, more people, you know, feeling comfortable with it over the last few years, but, you know, that you still know just given the, the stats that people run and how many athletes there are, there's still, you know, a lot who don't feel comfortable. So I think that's, uh, you know, they shouldn't, um, would like to create an atmosphere where people don't feel that way. Um, so that's why, you know, I thought it was such a great, you know, event to be part of. Could you get a sense that the ATP as it is now, maybe from talking to other players or just from observing, that it's a place that's a safe space for an athlete should they choose to come out? Um, you know, to be honest, I wouldn't, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's not something that's been spoken about too much, to be honest with you, um, because there's not been, you know, many examples of it, I think. Um, you know, if I do think back in my own mind, the sort of conversations just in the locker room and stuff, it's, it's not really something that's come up to, you know, to be honest with you. I mean, I would really hope so. I mean, in speaking to guys, I mean, you know, especially today, I think, uh, you know, at least a lot of the players that you know, I'm chatting to more often, obviously you can't spend a lot of time with everybody. I mean, but the people who I do, I think would all be very you know, supportive of, you know, of that. So uh, you know, I'd certainly like, you know, like to think so. And if I can think of the people who I know well enough to sort of answer that question for, you know, you know I would certainly say yes. Listening to Kevin speak about his own personal experience and his family really reminds me that when you know somebody, when, when it happens in your own family, somebody you really care about, you just said it. It. You know, like it's it's so <laughs> right. easy to right. say something that can be taken in a derogatory mm -hmm. way. But when you know somebody who is gay or trans or queer, things can really change for you. And you know, for a lot of folks who've never had to consider the life of a queer person and what that entails and may have had negative attitudes toward queer people before, that's often the pathway that allows them to open up a new worldview, right? To let gay people into their lives. And I'm not saying that that's the way that it happened for Kevin, but that's the way he presented it to us in that, in that audio that you just heard. And the net effect of that is that we now have somebody who is an ally. Kevin Anderson is an ally helping us start and hopefully push the conversation forward. We touched on it at the end of that clip that while Kevin is an ally and we were thrilled to hear him talk about gays in tennis because nobody was talking about gays in tennis, this was unprompted on his behalf to be supporting this event. We still had him saying things like, I'm a huge supporter of that. And in another breath saying more people being comfortable with it. What is that and what is it? Yeah, I don't really find that very instructive, to be honest. I think a lot of people just struggle with the correct language to be using. I don't read a lot into it. Yes, that's what I'm getting at. But it's pretty uniform. Even Federer. Federer did not say the word gay once in his somewhat long-winded answer. No, but Kevin's was a very different answer from Roger's. I found it refreshing at the time that Kevin was willing to say, I don't know. When asked, are, are the conditions there for someone to come out? He said, I don't know. It's not something that's talked about. I appreciated him not jumping to, oh yeah, definitely, it's no problem. Which is kind of what we got from Federer. Right. But it is, uh, I think, I hope, a very different ATP than it was back when Justin Gimmelstab was saying it would be a massive problem and it's totally incongruous with what the locker room environment is and if anyone came out they would have an issue i think we are in a different era where at least 
you know, that stuff may still be true, but somebody saying out loud is still, it would be seen as offensive. So that same summer, uh, about a month before we did our first episode that required a lot of historical research, right? This was our Pride episode. We talked about a bunch of different LGBTQ tennis players in history, some of whom are extremely famous, like Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova, and others who you may not know a lot about. Helen Jacobs was one of my favorite, just a, a segment that I really enjoyed putting together. She was a great tennis player of the 1930s, a four-time winner of the U.S. Open, the great rival of Helen Wills Moody, and Helen Jacobs was a lesbian who was in a relationship with a high-profile socialite in the South. Man, that was a pretty gay summer for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We see that with Helen Jacobs. Right, who played in the same era, was the great rival to Helen Wills Moody, who, again, is one of the most dominant tennis players in history. Her record is unbelievable. She went like seven or eight years without losing a match. And Helen Jacobs didn't really win that many matches against Helen Wills Moody, but their rivalry was so compelling because of the contrast in their games and their temperaments. But the reason that we're talking about Helen Jacobs is that she... Was because she was a lesbian. And she lived relatively openly for the time. Helen Jacobs' partner at the time. Imagine that she had a partner that she lived with. Right. Fairly openly in Kentucky. Her partner's name was Henrietta Bingham, and Bingham's great-niece wrote a story for Reuters lamenting the fact that Henrietta Bingham was not able to live out loud and experience the progress that gays have made in today's society, in present society, and that she wasn't able to enjoy the love of her life, Helen Jacobs, in public, in private, living together. Mm. It's a fascinating story. This, this woman who wrote this story about her family contributed a lot to our history that may have been lost. So Helen Jacobs was the winner of four U.S. championships, one Wimbledon singles title, a few doubles titles. She was the pioneer of wearing shorts. No women were wearing shorts as part of their tennis kit in those days, and it obviously made so much sense to wear shorts and not a dress. She was known for being more aggressive. She served and volleyed compared to Helen Wills Moody's patient backcourt play. Think about Chris Ebert and Martina Navratilova here, right? Jacobs didn't beat Moody very often, which I've said, but she is uh, one of the great figures of early 20th century tennis. So she finds herself in this relationship with Henrietta Bingham, who is part of this aristocratic family from Kentucky. Her family owns several major newspapers. Her father became the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain during FDR's presidency. And that is how they met at a function in Britain where Henrietta Bingham was helping her father throw the soiree. Right. So Bingham at the time was known for being a wild child. Apparently she possibly seduced famous women, including Tallulah Bankhead. She just enjoyed throwing the parties. She was living a life as a gay woman, uh, not necessarily out-out, but not a... Not hiding. This was the jazz age. Uh, things were a little bit looser. <laughs> and we see these cycles, right? We also get the impression from the story that 
Bingham's father, the ambassador, kind of isolated them and uh, insulated them from a lot of the discrimination. Like they were kind of untouchable because of him. Mm. And after his death, that's when things started to kind of fall apart. Right. So Jacobs was invited into the family home, spent some time at the embassy when they were living in the UK. Henrietta and Helen decided to move back to the US and settled in Louisville. And Henrietta was introducing Helen as her partner to Kentucky high society. And for a little while, it was tolerated. But, you know, the 20s were over. It was the mid-30s, depression, things were changing. The culture was not feeling very tolerant in those days. As the war started gearing up, Bingham stayed and worked on the farm out of necessity. Helen Jacobs joined the Navy, became a Navy intelligence officer, and their relationship ended. We get this wonderful nugget in this piece from the great niece, where she gives us a snippet of a love letter that was written from Helen Jacobs to Henrietta Bingham. In it, she writes, Such wonderful days are ahead of us, beloved. Horses from Harmony Landing would be world famous, flowers and Labradors from likewise, and we will grow mellow together. We will throw historic, brilliant parties and pool our brains to think up all sorts of fun, and I will be your farm manager when you need one and put you to sleep when you need that too. We can be happy and proud together, darling. I am beside you, behind you, and on top of you, if you want. You can do and say nothing to stop the constant flow of deep and growing love that goes out to you from my heart every time I look at you. Can you imagine receiving such a letter? (laughs) (laughs) I sure as hell have never written you one. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) But sadly, their love story does not have a happy ending. They separated. Jacob's moved to Long Island with a new partner. Henrietta Bingham moved to New York as well with a different partner. She suffered from substance abuse and breakdowns for for much of the rest of her life, sadly. Due to her drug and alcohol abuse, and also, I'm assuming, due to the fact that she was a lesbian, some of her family members were pressuring her to get a lobotomy. And she managed to stave that off and was able to relocate to New York and start again. But her her so-called demons stayed with her. But these are the layers and the, the textures to queer histories that we can only really get from descendants in this kind of way, mm-hmm. right? And it's such a, a service that Emily Bingham did to us and the public, the world, to keep this story alive. Right. There, there's a real lack of primary sources for a lot of this stuff because... But also everything had to be a secret for right. a matter of survival. Right. And so... Do you really hang on to those love letters for fear of being found out? When they could be exposed. And prosecuted Mm -hmm. in some instances. I'm so glad to be able to listen to that letter again. Mm -hmm. We will grow mellow together. You get these wonderful, wistful, longing ideas about what their future could be. And then she just throws in... I'll be on top of you if you want as well. Like something a little bit, you know, saucy. Mm. And we know that that love story did not come to fruition. It didn't have a happy ending. But like we said back then, so much of our history, of queer history, is unspoken. And we're really at the mercy of primary sources that were left over. Um, 
like I said, descendants, great nieces who are still around to tell the story when people actually want to hear it because people didn't want to hear it back then. The great thing about that story is that it's in Helen's own words. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes when we get these stories, they're told by a friend. Somebody who's outlived this person who might not be queer themselves, could be an ally, but you don't get the same richness as to what life would have been like back then. This is really unique. Now for something completely different. Colleen Vandeway, who you may know as Coco, has has suffered at our hands over the years. I can say that now. We have been a little rough on Colleen. I see here that this is the bit that you are not happy with in retrospect. It is. Stuff that you would have said back then. So this clip is from November 2017, and we're discussing an incident where Colleen screamed at her opponent, Yulia Gerges, get that shit out of here. And at the time, it was kind of one in a long line of what we viewed as indiscretions or misbehaviors. Before we say too much, I'd like to play the clip and then then I'll talk about it. This is me in defense of Coco. Wow. At this, at this juncture, in that I want to posit a few questions. Okay. To push back at that in terms of how we viscerally react to her. Rhetorical or no, questions for serious me. questions. Okay. Is it because she is not particularly feminine in her aesthetic and physicality? Mm. That she's a jock, that we find that threatening in some way, that we find that kind of outburst more disgusting because it's coming from a woman and not a man. Oh, do you, do you want me to answer yes, that? Yes, I do. For the first question, I will I will concede that her physicality and the way that she performs gender can be off-putting to some people. Because that reaction is not something that we think about, right? Correct. That's a difficult question. It's something I've it thought is. about myself. And But like, the second part of your question, men who behave like that, I don't like that either. And I mean, I think we've, we have receipts on that. We've shown that the players who I admire, Rafa Nadal, for example, even Andy Murray, with all his crazy shit, would never, would never scream at an opponent like that, saying, get that shit out of here. I don't want to say that because I don't know all of Andy's <laughs> receipts. <laughs> I'm not going to put myself okay. out there like that. Andy has a lot going for him. I don't know if that's necessarily one of them. Right. Because he does have his No, but his most outbursts. of his outbursts are self-directed. Okay. And the worst thing that he said to someone was, everybody hates you, to Lucas Russell. And that was no Tino Shea. Uh, well, no, it was just like, it's a bad look. You're losing. You just lost the first set. You're trying to stay in this match. Great. And you punish a second serve badly. You hit a great shot. And as something takes over you that you have to scream that. It's just, it's, this is, this is tennis. And I hate to sound like a prude and a snob, but this is not basketball. Like, you didn't just dunk on her. To the alt-right listeners who may posit... <laughs> if there are any left. <laughs> who may posit this question as well. How do you reconcile your admonishment of Coco in this situation with Serena's U.S. Mm -hmm. Open outburst. And can you... Oh, the U.S. Open Potentially outburst. Australian. Would, would the, the shove it down your throat mm -hmm. one? Yeah, see, I I think you could pick better ones. Okay. The, the U.S. Open outburst 
we have been through so many times. I didn't condone it at the time, and I don't now. Mm-hmm. She paid her price. She served her time, and but those this those, has passed. Those actions, mm-hmm. like what's what's the difference between the two? Well, um, she didn't direct it at her opponent. I don't think it's great to direct it at an official, <laughs> a paid official either, trying to do her job. I believe that that official was wrong, but okay. that doesn't that doesn't excuse what Serena did. And I'm not here to relitigate what that what that whole thing was. Okay, so set aside that mm-hmm. specific incident. That's okay. been one of the the knots on Serena over the years, right? Right. Or the the supposed gamesmanship or the drama. See, I think that what Coco does exceeds drama and is just bad bad sportsmanship. That's just, all that's all you got? I don't yeah, that's all I got. I don't like it. I'm trying to get you to a point where you just say I don't like her. Well I don't. And that's <laughs> not a secret. And if we're being honest, a lot of that is because of her politics. And I reserve that right. Okay. I, I just tried to complicate her a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I segment. I appreciate that and we are a podcast who should be talking about stuff like that. Now, is there anything about Coco's game that you would be complimentary about? Yes, yes, and I'm glad you asked because I try. Well, we try our best to be fair, at least. I I don't think we've been entirely fair to Coco over this past year. Um, are you like on the county? No, 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 no. I'm not on the bandwagon. Mm. It's not so much about being fair. It's about within the context of what we what you just said, trying to be fair as a podcast right an objective or whatever okay. we have not been that to Colin. yes we not that we necessarily have a we problem are very with that. subjective yes but we're open about that yes put it that's what i'm that trying bias. to get at. yes correct maybe we have not been entirely fair mm-hmm. but to be fair tbf in this situation yeah uh i mean colleen made the top 10 it's no accident she had a great year at the majors she has a really good volley she has touch at the net. Her volleying is so impressive. It's it so, really is. It's some of the easiest, precise volleying I've mm-hmm. seen on tour. Yeah. And, and for somebody who's bigger in stature and, you know, more imposing, moving forward to the net, she does it so seamlessly. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I, I like, I just love the power game. Like, the women's power game is something I really like. So, her attack mode is impressive. But I think that her brain gets in the way a lot like it's her own worst enemy aside from the sort of the intangibles she has an impressive game and it can get her really far just one of which the we've biggest, seen biggest serves on tour one of the biggest forehands mm-hmm. the backhand everything is powerful right her movement is probably the weakest aspect of her game yeah but she's but you can you can sort of fudge that i mean less so i think in 2017 wta but for a long time, Lindsay Davenport's movement wasn't great. And it was never amazing, but it got better. But she's shown this year a desire to improve and get better, to get to the next level. Yes. So I think for folks who are really opposed to Coco, you may want to take a few anti-Coco pills <laughs> <laughs> heading into 2018 because it's entirely possible she could be busting out. Oh, I... I... I don't think we need to go that far. I'm not ready for all of that. I'm never going to like her, but I can acknowledge what works in her game. Lordy. Mm. Well, first, we uh, I'm kind of gutted a bit 
by my saying at the end there that we need to brace ourselves because she could be busting out in a big way. Coco had a great 2017 and then got injured mm-hmm. and has been a shadow of herself on the comeback trail. So I... Right. And I feel badly about that. Mm-hmm. It makes me view her in a, a different light where she is now. What is it that you I, feel badly about? I'm happy for the opportunity to look at this again. Hmm. Because I'm not proud of it. Why? Because I don't think that I was being entirely honest with myself or the listeners. Because I said, we try our best to be fair and we are subjective and we're open about our biases. And at the time, I presented it as if that were enough. That that being open about it was enough to have integrity. And looking back, I don't think it was. I think I, think I was being unfair and just because i was being honest about that didn't make it okay what were you being unfair about because you presented a thesis statement yes at the beginning of the clip that uh coco being a woman who behaves this way makes it look really different and it colors people's reaction to it and the way you termed it that she performs gender in a certain way right and I knew, like, I remember at the time, I knew where you were going, and I agreed with it in principle, and I didn't pick up the thread. And had I, if I had the opportunity again, I would have. Because I was, at the time, clouded by this dislike. And I, I really couldn't get around that. So I see that as a failing on my part. Pick up the thread and go where? Where would you have gone? Well, okay, so at the time, what I said to, to kind of defend myself was that no, I don't defend that behavior in men either. But it wasn't about whether I defend that behavior. It was whether that behavior is generally acceptable, right? That That's what I didn't interrogate mm-hmm. f- fully enough. And that's what I would have would have done if I could go back and look at this again. The fact that other people do not receive gender being performed that way by a woman then immediately casts Colleen in a certain way. Right. Whereas it might be different for you, she then gets caught up in this tornado of fuckery that she can't get out of. <laughs> right. Even if she tries. So we have been harsh on men who act crazy in tennis. That's true. But a lot of people aren't. And the general thrust of men behaving badly in tennis is, oh, look at this funny incident. Ha ha ha. With you Nick cannot or, be serious. Or with Fabio or John McEnroe or, you know. That it's entertainment. So I should have been more honest looking at Colleen. And I should have... uh, So this was recorded in 2017. When you mentioned the Serena U.S. Open incident, you were talking about 2009. Yeah, because it hadn't happened yet in 2018. It it hadn't happened yet. But I should have lent the same empathy that I give to Serena or Venus or any of the other female players that I like, I should have lent that toward Colleen, as difficult as it would have been at the time. And you can also still not like her. Right. That's not important. Why should she care if I like her? Mm -hmm. So for the next clip, I cut this early last week, and at the time, it was interesting to me. I kind of have forgotten what's in it. I had (laughs) no idea what's in it, because I haven't touched it. (laughs) So I think what we're about to hear is a segment we did in 2018 about equal prize money and at the time that topic had already been overdone but i was trying to distill kind of the most important arguments 
in favor of equal prize money. This is what you I think, think is I think about to happen. that's what we're about to hear. We shall see. When people say that, well, you know, the men are more popular, people are more interested in men and watching men. That's A, because you're in the golden era of men's tennis right now. Mm. Enjoy it. It's not going to last. And B, society is set up to disadvantage women in this argument. Right. Women start behind the eight ball. While having to prove right? their worth, you know. We've talked about this before in the podcast. When girls are five years old and they're playing any kind of athletic sport with a boy of the same age, they have more physical prowess, more likely, Mm -hmm. at that age, because they develop more quickly than men do, than boys do. Right. And so when a boy comes to that little athletic encounter, thinking that he's better than the girl and he's going to beat that girl, it's because he's been taught from a long time ago Mm -hmm. (laughs) that he should be better than that girl. That he is better than that girl and that boys should beat girls because boys are better than right. girls. Right. And that throwing like a girl is, sucks. And, and then you're you're gay because you throw like a girl. Right. You know, like these are the ways that we, quite frankly, fuck up our children. And they grow into adults who behave like complete morons on Twitter and in comment sections and oh my God. professional tennis players on the ATP tour. Like this troll today said, oh, do you really think 10 year olds are thinking about sociology? Yes! You know, <laughs> yes, when a young girl thinks that she can compete on the level of a boy who's one foot shorter than her, yes, that's sociology at Well, I was work. making the art, they were saying that, you know, <laughs> this person said that men are better athletes than women are. And, I, and he said, that's biological, it's a fact. And I said, no, it's a sociological construct. There's no fact in that at all. Mm-hmm. And then there was the argument that, you know, you know, do do you think any girls are dealing with sociology at 10 years old. And I didn't even respond well, because you're, well, of abso- course they you're are. absolutely <laughs> making my point. Right. And I made a decision at that time that, you know, you and your 10 followers were not getting the benefit mm-hmm. of my response. <laughs> because, like, if I were to respond to everybody who did not have the intellectual acumen to process these thoughts, then I would do nothing in my life. No, but they're, they're not prepared to hear it. No. As well. You know, not. you're wasting your breath. This is what I'm talking about not engaging, because sometimes it's yeah. just not worth it. But this is something that I'm particularly not willing to engage with, because I don't talk about this often, but I have a, a bachelor's and master's degree in sports sociology. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is actually my training. Like, I took courses right. on... Sport in the civil rights movement, how race interacts with society and and sport, gender relations in sport, all these different sociological perspectives in which sport can be viewed. Mm-hmm. So I, you actually have some expertise in this I area. I Yeah. And it's a passion of mine. But this is not something that can translate through Twitter. The problem with sports is that, like, in sports, everybody everybody's an expert. An, everybody's an expert, you know? an expert. So many people are unwilling to consider sport through a sociological lens. Yeah. Well, that they believe that it's separate from In politics. a genre and a an aspect of society where everything is so stats-driven, there's no way that you can convince somebody that Usain Bolt, who runs a 100-meter race in 9.5-something seconds, mm-hmm. is not as good as Shailene Fraser-Price, who is a double Olympic gold medalist, multiple world champion right. from the same country, who runs, who is just such a joy to watch run. You know? Well, it's... Okay. This this idea of being better and deconstructing that mm-hmm. is 
it's something that's hard to 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 push through the higher, faster, stronger. Right. Well, in, in track right? and field, the contrast is so stark. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the best men run faster than the best women. That that's a fact in track and field. But in other sports, it's like what sort of attributes do you value in an athlete? And maybe you think that Serena Williams is a better athlete than, say, Tomas Berdych. Mm-hmm. Now, would she win if they played? No. no. But is that is that why you watch sports? The idea that she's not as physically strong, that she can't deadlift more than a top male athlete, is that important? And I don't think it is. No, I don't you know, either. That's not why we watch women's sports or sports in general. And even if you think that that makes a male athlete better than the equivalent female athlete, that is not then reason for you to say that one should be paid more than the other. Well, right. It's not. Because that's not how we pay athletes. No. We don't pay athletes for their time. They don't punch a time clock. Um, some boxing matches last like... Two seconds. Right, right, right. And they still get paid. Millions you know? of dollars. They don't get paid by the second. It's just not how sports works. You don't get paid by the set. Nor should you. Because some five set matches are boring. And people are not watching. You know? <laughs> Same with some two set women's matches are boring too. Anyway, I feel like we've spent long enough on these arguments. But I you think... also wanted to talk about how equal prize money is predicated on fairness, not economics, right? Right. I, you know, this is where Venus is coming from. This is where Billie Jean King is coming from. We're not going to win if we make the economic argument or if we entertain these many contradictory arguments against unequal prize money. People arguing against prize money have an ideology and they're searching for anecdotes to back it up. Mm -hmm. I've said this before. I'm plagiarizing myself. Which is why you're plagiarizing (laughs) yourself. Which is why we think of it as such a cut and dry, no brainer issue. Not even willing to interact Mm -hmm. with these with these opposing thoughts, right? Right. It's a moral argument. Mm -hmm. I believe that the moral argument has been the most successful in making strides toward equal prize money. Mm -hmm. I think that's what works. What about the people who who then say you frame it in terms of a moral argument? which only goes to affirm my position that, you know, quantifiably speaking, Mm -hmm. women aren't up to scratch with men. (laughs) You have to then bring in this extra, you know, vague kind of way of describing it to make your argument. Okay, well, my argument would be that I'm not a capitalist and I believe in regulation. Okay. And I don't think that the free market rules everything because I think that's chaos. <laughs> that That's it. I think that as a society or societies, plural, we're allowed to have cultural standards and values to which we aspire. And for me, this is one that I aspire to, the equality of the sexes, regardless of who's bringing in the most money, because that's not what I value. So that's that's it. That was a bit of a mic drop. Congrats. <laughs> I would like you to acknowledge my wingman position. Yes, you really set, you you set up for me up. That. Thank you. Okay. To, to add on to what you said at the end there, you're not a capitalist and you do not believe in the free market. But also the free market doesn't necessarily demand that men should get paid more than women. 
because there have been times historically where women have been more popular, yes. especially in tennis. Yes. They weren't paid more at those times. No. I mean, the free market does not exist. We we know this. It's It's extremely clear in the current crisis that major corporations are having to be bailed out now once a decade or even more frequently than that. Like the free market is not working. That's a bit of a side note. It is, but it's frustrating. What I think what I was getting at at the time is that, so I'm making a moral argument. What I wanted was for the detractors to admit that they were too making a moral argument. That, you know, the entertainment value, the number of sets, the the relative popularity of men's to women's tennis, these are not rigorous analytical arguments. You don't have spreadsheets to show me, right? Like, these are all moral arguments. You're coming from a specific perspective, and most of the people who are arguing against equal prize money are not coming with balance sheets and income statements and 10 years of ratings history. They're simply not doing it. No, they're coming to you with a fictitious balance sheet that they assume you will take to be fact. Right. Because like, like we've said earlier in the episode, an... we are so taught to assume that men are better than women in sport right. that why would there be a balance sheet that says otherwise? Like, I don't have an economics degree, but I'm not stupid either. Listen, you everybody know? is gaslighting as a fucking economist <laughs> these days. They sure are, yes. Um, one thing that... One of our earlier clips about, I think it was about in the Andy Murray segment, when we were talking about how the 1,000th ranked or the 250th ranked man could beat the top female players. Like, cool, fine. Who the fuck wants to watch the 250th ranked male player? Are you spending three, $400 on a ticket to watch them on Arthur Ashe? No, absolutely the fuck you're not. But Battle are... of the sexes, Marcus Willis. Versus really Venus Williams. Like no Get disrespect, no disrespect to those guys who are working their asses off. But really, people are paying a thousand, two thousand dollars to watch the top women play, even though the best college player could probably beat that woman. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Like if if strength, speed, and fitness were the only measures. Ivo Karlovic might be the biggest superstar and the most highest paid athlete in men's tennis. And he is simply not. Like, there are so many different measures and emotional responses that make people want to watch tennis players. Some of it is supreme athletic feats, like Novak and Rafa. Listen. Some of it is drama. Some of it is... It's it's all big three driven and everybody else is the trickle down okay. effect. And these players who should be so thankful to be making this money off the coattails of these men rather than... Would you say they should be kissing their feet? <laughs> no, no, for the record, that was a joke. Yes, uh, a joke. But rather than agitate and try and bring women along, you're both in an economic struggle here together. You want to suck from that big three teat even more and get as much as you can rather than work with your compatriots on the WTA tour who are experiencing a similar economic disadvantage. Sure. I would like to put a moratorium on the teat metaphor, (laughs) if I could. 
<laughs> but it's a minor quibble. So we said we didn't know what was coming in that little clip. We did not. And we just kind of went with it. Last bit before we wrap up this episode. This is from Circling the Wagons and Ball Marks, where we talk about tennis fandom as a fetish. Do you remember what Circling the Ball Marks was referring to? I I oh, do not right now. Really? I'm. Oh my god. This looks so different uh, about well, 10 months later. It was when Sophia Kennan beat Serena Williams at Roland Garros in 2019. Oh, is that what that and was? We barely knew who she was. We were making fun of the fact that she was circling all the ball marks on the clay. And I mean, what, seven months later, she's a Grand Slam champion and a top five player? <laughs> that was May 2019? Yeah. I don't even recall that yeah, happening. Yeah, because in 2018, Serena got to, I think, the, the what? The, the fourth the, round. The fourth round and, and pulled to, out. She was going to play Maria. Yeah. yeah, so this was definitely last year. Wow. So, here we go. One of the big downsides of this week, this first week of the French Open, <sighs> was the mad, wild seemingly out of nowhere beefs that happened on tennis twitter who has time for all this to even keep track of who's mad at whom it's last night i tweeted wow tennis twitter burnt itself to the ground today good night (laughs) (laughs) and and maybe that's a good thing keep in mind that we have already lived through the 2018 us open we lived through that and yet this feels worse no, Somehow. no, no, no. My take is that... It feels more deranged to I me. have lived through that and I'm not doing it again. I'm quite simply not doing it again. I'm not engaging anymore. What we're talking about, of course, is the Serena-Dominic team press room drama. That's one of the things. One of the things. One of the things. <laughs> That's the most recent one. We have members of Rena's army uh, tagging Alexis Ohanian blaming him for serena's career uh i i mean talking about absolute mess talking about sorry to be crude here but if it weren't for his sperm we would have 24 like that shit right like who is we who is we here wild did you help serena win any of those majors she won the majors she decided to have a beautiful child with this man who she seems to have a loving relationship with Even if it wasn't, it's none of our business. That stuff is so beyond the pale, it is horrifying. It's crazy to me the things that people feel okay with saying (laughs) on Twitter. Like, you're really going to use your name, your own name, and put that stuff out there? Well, in a sense, credit to those people, because we know there are other people who hide behind aliases and pictures of players and and say even worse. Mm -hmm. So, But... To me, like this is the the danger of fandom because fandom is a fetish, right? It takes a, a living thing and objectifies that person. So it, it can suck all the humanity out of a real person and they become a totem. They become an object that you can imbue all your hopes and dreams into. So that person's health and well-being and happiness matters less to you because they are they're a symbol right they're not a living breathing human being with flaws and and pain and weaknesses 
And of course, not all fans are like this, but this is what fandoms can do. But at the same time, you want them to step and fetch it and smile and enjoy the tennis that they're performing for you. Oh, is that a a hit at me? A slight dig at you. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I do try to keep in mind that person's humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why I say that for Serena, because as someone who has been important to me, I I do want her to be happy. Not because it'll make me happy. You know, I I don't know. Maybe that's how maybe you don't believe it, but mm. I I do. At a very base level, what has become crystal clear is that fandom and being a fan is an entirely irrational experience and proposition. <laughs> right. Like at best it's irrational and at worst it can become what we've seen over the past mm-hmm. weekend. It can become damaging and dangerous. It can also become dangerous in a criminal sense. In this, in the case of Monica Sellis, mm-hmm. like we're, a, a, we're back in the present day now. Yes, fandom exists along a long spectrum. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is something that I would really like to tackle in the coming year, because it looks like we're going to have a lot of downtime without tennis being played. I would like to look at celebrity culture and fandom from kind of a more academic perspective with regard to tennis because maybe this is something that hasn't been done in tennis well maybe you should do some work on that i sure am it's safe to say when was that recorded last year Mm -hmm. that folks are still out here wilding out acting all crazy Still demanding things that they have no business demanding of tennis players. (laughs) And, I mean, let's be clear. Like, tennis Twitter and the communities that have evolved on social media have added so much to the experience of this sport. And a lot of it is good. Mm -hmm. Like, there is a fine line between joking about Serena's Instagram videos and saying, well, I still don't see her exercising. Right. (laughs) Or moving her feet, you know, like there's some levity in that because part of the fan experience is that you suffer along. If you are a true stan of a person, be it in pop music or sport, you suffer along with them and you experience the highs along with them, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so at this current stage, Serena fans are, are going through it. And so that's somewhere able to find the humor in it in a way that's not downright rude. And as we say back home, Ota Ada. <laughs> Kudos to them. Right. But there's a fine line before it slips into just, you need to check yourself. Right. Because you right. are you are Ota Ada. I wanted to close the episode with some levity because this was the gravity episode. I didn't prepare you for this. Would but... you say that you're now currently defying gravity? <laughs> and I brings that levity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to quote the queen. Yes. MC herself, who is celebrating an anniversary this month, this week. She is that chick you like. We don't know if she is 50, 49, 51. No, we know she's either 50 or 51 as of March 27th, her Uh anniversary. But we don't know the year. It could be either 1969 or 1970. Mm -hmm. If you go to her Wikipedia page, (laughs) it'll say that her birth date is either March 27th, 1969 or... March 27th, 1970. I admire someone who is that famous in the digital age who can keep her birth date a mystery. 
amazing. And with so many family members willing to sell her down the river. (laughs) Right. So what I wanted to do was a segment we've done many, many times before. Things we like right now. Something that's happening in popular culture that you are enjoying. Because people need joy right now. Were you not going to give me a heads up about this? No, no. I want you to just go off the cuff. Well, you go first. So my mine is One Day at a Time has returned in a different iteration. It was a Netflix show. It was canceled by Netflix. And now it's on Pop TV, which is also what houses Schitt's Creek in the United States. One Day at a Time, if you have not seen it, is such a delightful show. It's kind of this traditional sitcom. It's a reboot of the, uh, what, early 80s sitcom. And it just, it has everything. It has joy. It has Rita Moreno, who's in her 80s now. Well into her 80s. Yeah. And it tackles some very serious topics, but never gets too bogged down in them. Doesn't get preachy. It's just fun. I love it. Things I like, since I'm unprepared for this, I'll go with the thing that I've most recently liked, which was last night. I was going down a YouTube rabbit hole and I landed on Mariah and Whitney's appearance for the Prince of Egypt on Oprah when they were both promoting their individual albums. Whitney's My Love Is Your Love, one of the absolute best R&B records of the last 25 years. And a shame that it took so long for her to be able to make it under the so-called guidance of Clive Davies. And Mariah promoting her number ones record, which featured her 13 number ones to date at that time, plus an additional, I think, four tracks. Anyway, that is a moment that it's unrivaled. You have these two women sitting down on the couch with Oprah for an hour. And I just smiled through the whole thing. And the best part, I mean, there's the singing. They open the show with singing When You Believe Together. And then they each perform a solo track. Whitney performing I Learned From The Best, which is one of my absolute favorite Whitney songs. And then Mariah does I Still Believe. And at the end, Oprah asks them if they think of themselves as divas or something like that. And you can tell that they clearly both do. Whitney makes no bones about it. And then she goes on to define what a diva is. And then Oprah asks Mariah, so do you think you're a diva? And she goes, well, you know, there's divas from back in the day, and then there's divas oh the day. (laughs) (laughs) And they all three just start cracking up. And the answer to this question lays to rest any doubt that Mariah and Whitney got along, because you cannot fake that rapport. Mm -hmm. Even, Even if Mariah and Whitney fought... Because I'm sure they fought occasionally. There was genuine love between mm-hmm. them, as you can see. And then they, Mariah went on to say that Oprah was a diva o television. <laughs> and it just, it went on for a while because Mariah was asked about her Divas Live performance where she sang alongside Aretha Franklin and then shared the stage with Celine, Carol King, Shania Twain, Gloria Estefan. And she then referred to Aretha as diva o life. <laughs> And so they're just riffing on this whole diva thing there. And it it could have been a very loaded question. Because you have Whitney, who is uh, the diva of higher standing at that time. Mm -hmm. And you have Mariah, who's seen as the protege, the one who was compared to her for years. 
and they somehow managed to navigate it together with uh with graciousness toward each other despite how they both feel about themselves and with deference to where the other person is you know it was it was mm-hmm. skillful lighthearted fun and genuine and my only regret is that Oprah did not interrupt them as much as she did in that hour because so many times they were there ready, especially Mariah, to give you something cute. And Oprah was like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whitney did not have that problem. Whitney sat there and she said her piece mm. and you could not tell her otherwise. See, I sprung the segment on you and look how good you did. Mm, I did well. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. This was the second and final TBS Rewind. We'll be back shortly with some original content. Mm -hmm. We're working on other stuff. We're not just copping out here by doing these episodes. No. We're giving us some time to work on some other stuff. So look out for that. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is on Twitter at The Body Serve. On Instagram, at same. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Overwave, undercase, overcast, (laughs) sideways. Yeah, yeah. All All of them. All those. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.